In the spring of 1983, the Reagan administration released the landmark A Nation at Risk report detailing how America's educational system was failing many students and recommending school leaders to adopt new standards uh, and to evaluate teacher preparation and pay. It shook the foundation of American education, uh, painting a bleak picture of the state uh, of the nation's schools. The Reagan administration, to be clear, uh, had an agenda. Uh, when it came to education, and the report served as a powerful tool in advancing their goals. But 40 years later, there are some serious questions to be asked about uh, the state of education uh, uh, four decades after this landmark report, uh, again called A Nation at Risk. A lot of questions to ask and get answered in this hour, including um, whether or not anything has changed in education over the last 40 years. What is the state of America's schools uh, four decades later? Are black students in particular still being victimized by what uh, George Bush would later call the soft bigotry of low expectations? A lot to talk about in this hour, 40 years after this landmark report called A Nation at Risk. Who better to be joined by in this hour than the distinguished professor of education at UCLA, Dr. Tyrone Howard, who is also the current president of the American Educational Research Association. Dr. Howard, welcome back to this program, sir. How are you? Doing well, Tavis. How are you doing this morning? If I complained, I'd be an ingrate, brother. You know me. I'm glad to have <laughs> you back <laughs> and glad to have an hour. Uh, a lot to unpack. Um, you were just a kid 40 years ago. <laughs> but but, uh, but in, in your study, uh, in your review, uh, do you uh, have thoughts about what the Reagan administration tried to do 40 years ago with this report, A Nation at Risk? As I say, clearly they had an agenda and they used it to their to their own ends and aims. But it did, uh, I think, uh, fairly, uh, I said earlier, shake uh, the roots of education in this country. So, yes, I'm glad you are. Uh putting the spotlight on this uh, 40-year anniversary of A Nation at Risk because it's important in the educational historical context. And I think it's always important, Tavis, to understand the source. And so you are spot on by talking about the fact that this came out of the Reagan administration, and there was always an agenda. But what's important to set the context for why this report came out is that the administration stated that they were concerned about the state of education in the country. And one of the quotes that's in that report that's really telling is that they say that the educational foundations of our country are presently being eroded by a rising tide of mediocrity that threatens our very future as a nation and a people. So in short, what they were saying is that, okay, we've got to be better. We've got to be better because there were significantly high illiteracy rates in the country. Uh, there were other countries across the globe who were making gains on us. Think back to 1957, the Sputnik era, where we felt like we had to be better when it came to technology and science. Mm -hmm. So essentially what the, the, the Department of Education, ironically, which Ronald Reagan was trying to disband when this came out, mm -hmm. uh, uh, was centered, centered around how do we increase our standards? Uh, how do we make sure that we have better teachers? How do we ensure that we have uh, you know greater rigor in what students are having access to? So the goal was to move the needle to see to it how that we could raise the stakes, raise the standards, raise the outcomes for America's school children. But I, I would say that one of the challenges with this is that, as my grandmother always said, the devil's in the detail. Mm -hmm. And I think what the nation at risk did not get into was the breakdown of subgroups, i.e. black folks, i.e. poor folks. Uh, in terms of how they have always received a subpar education in America schools. And I'm sure we can get to that later. But, yes, this is an important uh, milestone in education because it set the foundation for a host of other educational reforms that would soon follow. It did indeed. And it seems to me, uh, and you're right, we'll get to those black folk and poor folk later in this hour. But it seems to me 
uh, back to the agenda of the Reagan administration, uh, that if nothing else, what this Nation at Risk report did was to make a, uh, to, to draw uh, the beginnings, if you will, of a straight line toward uh, addressing the issues of standards uh, and stakes that you referenced earlier. And to my mind, I'm not, an, I'm not an education expert. You are. That's why I have you on. But to my mind, that really is the starting point, if you will, uh, of the race um, uh, to do something about education. But that race took us straight to step uh, straight to, if I can say it, took us straight to standardized testing. Uh, and now everybody is pretty much over uh, standardized testing, uh, teaching to the test. But that's where we that's where this nation at risk report um, set us off uh, toward. Does that make sense? No, you're spot on, because what it called for was standardization, national standardization. And one of the critiques of the, the, the policy of nation at risk is that it did not take into account local realities, local context, local concerns. And so you're right. We saw the, a massive uptick in standardized tests that happened after a nation at risk. And what we know is that these standardized tests do not take into consideration so many other factors that shape educational outcomes and educational experiences. But what we saw was that this became the formula to say we're going to determine who are failing schools and who are successful schools based on how well you do with these tests. And there are economic booms that came out of these tests. You know, places like ETS, Educational Testing um, Systems mm -hmm. Services, they have made billions of dollars over the 40 years around testing. Uh, and we also have to recognize that you can continue to test and test and test. Testing does not help improve learning. That would be akin to me saying, I'm going to lose weight, but I'm just going to keep buying me a different scale every week and find more scales, and maybe that will help me lose weight. The testing was not improving teaching. The testing was not improving learning. The testing was not improving the conditions in schools that far too many young people went to. So, yes, if you want to look at where we are now, 40 years plus after a nation uh, at risk, the, the, the introduction of high-level, high standards, uh, standardized testing became very much enmeshed in the fabric of schools in 1983. How did uh, a nation at risk uh, put us on track toward Common Core? Yeah, so part of what a nation at risk really required states to do was to begin to say, listen, we've got to have more intense, more rigorous standards. And so after we had a nation at risk, uh, somewhat, uh, almost 20 years later, you had No Child Left Behind. Mm -hmm. No Child Left Behind, uh, under the Bush administration, one of the things it had was this, this concept called Common Core. And what Common Core really called for was to ensure that there was greater depth and, and complexity and rigor around standards, how we teach math, how we teach science, how we have students unpack literacy. But it was so amorphous that schools and states were left to kind of figure out what that meant for their local context. Common Core became one of the most frustrating sort of pieces of this educational policy reform movement because it wasn't clear as to how it would work in high-poverty areas where kids were already behind compared to where it might work in more affluent areas where students are already getting additional supports. So Common Core became another sort of outgrowth, if you will, of, 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 of a nation at risk because, again, this goal was we were sort of watering down our curriculum. Our kids were not being challenged academically. The rigor was lacking. We needed to do something better, and Common Core was an attempt to try to bring that into play with, in my opinion, some varying degrees of success. And I think the bottom line is we no longer have it, which I think speaks to the fact that we realized it did not do what it was intended to deliver. To the point that Dr. Howard is making right now, uh, a nation at risk 40 years ago pushed American education in a particular direction. The question is whether or not we are 
uh, headed in the right direction 40 years later, uh, whether it's time to make a U-turn. A lot to unpack in this hour uh, about uh, American education when we come forward with Dr. Tyrone Howard on KBLA Talk 1580. You are indeed, and we're glad about it. Our guest in this hour is Dr. Tyrone Howard as we um, talk about this landmark report 40 years ago that came out uh, during the Reagan era called A Nation at Risk. It was a report detailing our education system was failing many students and had all kinds of recommendations in it. And those recommendations, as you heard Dr. Howard say moments ago, uh, put us on the path toward testing, uh, standardized testing, uh, and the Common Core, which came 20 years later in the Bush era under No Child Left Behind. So uh, a nation at risk pointed us in a particular direction. Uh, the big question before I go forward, Dr. Howard, is whether or not uh, 40 years later, a nation at risk pointed us in the right direction, yes or no? Great question. Depends on who, for whom we are asking okay. in the right direction, mm -hmm. right? So, yeah. I mean, to be fair, let's. I think a nation at risk pushed us to have a conversation about the importance of academic standards, around sort of how we have to move away from the dilution of what was required to have a high school diploma, of what we were providing our students in terms of skills and content to compete in a in a in a, in a global workforce. So it pushed us to have that conversation. But let's be clear, Tavis, and you know this, there's always been a stratification of sort and sorting of who gets access to the better education in this country. So it did push, in my humble opinion, more affluent schools uh, that are predominantly white and Asian to have greater expectation, more advanced placement courses, more honors courses, uh, more college prep courses to ensure that they got access to the kind of rigor that a nation of risk called for. Mm -hmm. But the reality is, in schools where you saw black and brown and poor children, uh, they were not given those same kinds of resources. You saw fewer AP and honors courses. You saw fewer college prep courses. The bar was set still relatively low for the most marginalized students. So did it help those kids in more affluent areas? Sure. Uh, those in the, the not-so-affluent areas, I would argue not so much. But I might add this piece because it's a complex picture. We have seen growth across all groups in the 40 years since that. But what, those, 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 uh, what that growth does not always tell us is that the gaps have still remained in place. So while poor kids and black kids and brown kids have done well since the 40-year the, the uh, period that a nation at risk came into play, so have other students as well, which means that everybody wins, mm. but we still are losing from ter in terms of this, the disparity that exists. Well, um, let me let me ask, uh, and I'm not naive in asking. I'm, I'm asking because you raised it, and I want to follow you. Why do those disparities still exist 40 years after this uh, landmark report? Uh, why do those gaps uh, remain? Yeah, this is where a nation of risk falls short. Because, in my humble opinion, what 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 that report does not do, and subsequent uh, education reform movements have not done, is really centered the, the, the salience of structural and historical racism in this country. Mm. Uh, and so when you look at the groups who are still behind academically on almost virtually every indicator, we still see black students at the bottom of the barrel. We still see Native Americans at the bottom of the barrel. We see, you know, students who are, who are Latino and Latina at the bottom of the barrel. And so I think when you look at where resources have gone, uh, they have not gone in those communities to the same degree they've gone in more affluent and white communities. So I think the bottom line is why this 40-year anniversary is so pivotal is because when, this, when, when the nation at risk came out 40 years ago, we were talking about you know, black and brown students truly being a quote-unquote minority, uh, making up maybe 20, 25% of the student population at the time. Uh, so it was okay in the eyes of many to say if those young people fail, 
we can still thrive as a nation and we can compete globally because there's still a quote-unquote minority. Now, the data tells us that we are in a significant demographic shift where we're close to two-thirds of our students in schools are non-white. We can no longer neglect and ignore and provide subpar standards in terms of educational opportunity for those same populations that we did because that has major consequences for the health and well-being in the future of this nation. Mm. Situate for me, if you will, um, this ongoing debate uh, about equality versus equity in education, equality versus equity. Situate that for me, if you will, in this conversation as we look back on a nation at risk 40 years later. Sure. So, you know, one of the things that we, we see happening in the educational discussion is this, this sort of conflating, if you will, between equality and equity. And I always push back on this conflating because I think they're totally different concepts, and I think they have lots of relevance for this conversation we're having today. Mm-hmm. So equality operates from the standpoint that let's give everybody the same thing. Uh, let's be equal. Everyone gets the same opportunity, same advantages, and then we're fine. Where the reality is we're not all starting from the same place. We're not starting from the same sort of, you know, set of opportunities. We're not starting from the same set of advantages. So if we give everybody the same thing in terms of resource and support and dollars, all we're doing is reinforcing age-old inequality because we all know that certain communities have always been at a disadvantage in terms of per-pupil expenditures, teacher quality, uh, academic supports and resources. So giving equal dollars across the board only reinforces our current structure of sort of haves and have-nots. Where equity comes into play, and I think equity is important here, equity says let's recognize the historical harm, let's recognize the history of exclusion, let's recognize the legacy of racism that has been in place for centuries when it comes to education in this country. And equity says we are going to be unintentional, we're going to be intentional, I should say, and unapologetic and bold to say we're going to allocate more time, more attention, more resources to those populations, those communities that have been harmed by the legacy of racism, harmed by the legacy of Jim Crow, harmed by the legacy of separate but unequal. So equity says, how do we make sure we begin to sort of make do with a a, a different way? And this is why I think the reparations movement is important, because education could be one of those areas where we talk about, uh, you know, compensating communities that have been neglected for centuries, yet we act as if they've all started from the same place. Mm. Um, Tell me why I should believe, Dr. Tyrone Howard, that if America scarcely cares I mean, truly cares. If America scarcely cares truly about equality, never mind what we say in our founding documents. Uh, I'm talking not about the, 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 the ideals that we profess, but about the ideas that we seem to embrace in this country. And there's a distinct difference, a difference between those two things. So if America scarcely cares about equality, why should I believe that America really cares about equity, particularly in education, the way you just laid it out, which is to give these folk over here a bit more because they need more. If we don't care about equality, why should I believe we care about equity? Yeah, that's a that's a great question, and I think that's why we see this current mo- mo- this current moment have its uh, the anti woke movement, which in my mind is is synonymous with anti black movement, because I think that this country has been very um, sort of hypocritical in its commitment to equality mm-hmm. and saying that we believe in equality, we believe in egalitarianism, we believe in you know quote unquote equal opportunity for all, but then when we look at the groups that have historically been denied access to something as basic as what we call a public education, it tells us that equality has never been the goal. So that's why equity is even a more aspirational goal, but it's one that I think is appropriate in this time. Part of the challenge also here, Tavis, uh, you know, Heather McGee writes about this beautifully in her book called The Sum of Us. The, the Sum of Us. Uh, and what she says is that in this country, we 
have got to come to grips with the fact that any signs of black, of black progress in this country is seen in the eyes of many white folks as taking away from them. Mm. And part of what Heather McGee says is that when black folks do well, it does not have to come at the expense of white folks. It does not mean that we're taking away from white folks. It does not mean that we're somehow one-upping white folks. When black folks do well, we all win. We all, we all benefit. And so we've got to do a better job in this country of trying to articulate the way that when you help the least amongst us, and when it comes to the educational experience in this country, then black folks, that there is no sort of erosion, if you will, of the, of the American dream. We all get to attain it. We all get to recognize it. It's asking this country to live up to the democratic ideals that it says it believes in. I had a conversation earlier with, uh, with my friend Keith Borkin, uh, who used to work in the White House during the Clinton era. Uh, and I hope, I hope Keith is still listening, because this is the point I was making to Keith <laughs> a, a little while ago in our conversation, which is uh, we, were talking about Joe, we were talking about Joe Biden and all that he's done for black people. And Keith was making the point, uh, Dr. Howard, that the Biden administration hadn't done enough to, to push that out there. And I said, <laughs> Keith, there may be a reason for that, brother, why they're not pushing it out there. I'm, I'm not sure it's a winning strategy to tell the good white folk all you've done for the Negroes. I am not sure that that is a... <laughs> That is particularly a, a winning strategy. So I, I, I'm laughing now at the point you just made, uh, and I hope that Keith uh, uh, is listening to, is listening to that. Um, let, let, let me ask you this. Um, uh, since you mentioned reparations earlier in this conversation, uh, and, and I'm fascinated uh, by your mentioning it because I want to just uh, drill down a little bit more, or have you drill down a bit more, on the ways in which you think that education can be one of those spaces, can be, put another way, one of those answers to the question of how we define reparations. As you well know, um, part of what we're wrestling with here in California and we'll be wrestling with across the nation, of course the country is watching us because we're, we're moving swiftly on reparations in the state of California. And I've said many times that what happens in California politics either cast a long shadow or a long sunbeam across the nation. People watch what happens in California, as they are right now, on the issue of reparations. But you link these two things, reparations and education. I want to come back to that because it seems to me that you're right about that, that education can be, uh, access to it can be one of the answers to reparations. It can't just be a conversation, I think, just about money, about dropping right. money in your in your bank account, in my bank account. Nobody's going for that. The good white folk ain't going for that. It's got to be, I think, a little <laughs> more nuanced than just cutting checks to Negroes. So here you raise this issue now about reparations and education. Unpack that for me, if you will, as to how education can be one of the answers to the reparations question. Sure. So let me let me preface my comments by saying big shout out to, to Camila Moore, who is the chair of the Reparations Task Force Committee uh, for the state of California. She's one of my former students from UCLA. All so right. I, I take pride in, in seeing her <laughs> doing this work. But I think I think that, that you're right, Tavis. We cannot expect in this conversation for black folks to, to, to line up and get big fat checks as part of reparations. It's a much more nuanced conversation. And I think there's no greater place to start obviously, than education, because we have been harmed by lack of education for centuries in this country. So let me give you, let me make some connections for a second. So okay. one of the things you mentioned, you know, President Biden just a moment ago, uh, one of the things I think that he has done that has helped black folks was his effort to, to provide some student loan debt relief. Uh, why is that important? Uh, because there are hundreds of thousands of black folks in this country who have untold amounts of, uh, of, of student aid loan debt that cannot get from under. Uh, and it has crippled them in terms of some of them not being able to attain their degrees. Uh, it has crippled them in terms of uh, workforce opportunities. It has crippled them in terms of their ability to purchase homes. 
the, 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 what, what defaulting on student loan debt does to your credit and future economic opportunity is, is beyond measure. One of the things reparation can begin to do is what would it look like if you relieve some, or in my case, I would argue for all types of student loan debt that, that, that black folks have. That would be a massive lifting of, of, of sort of, uh, challenges on the economic prosperation, uh, prospects and the, and the educational prospects of, of black folks. What if you made high quality early childhood education accessible for all black folks? So you give black children a, a running uh, and viable start when we talk about the start of education. Mm-hmm. What if you ensured that, that black folks had vouchers where they could go to colleges and universities uh, once they were admitted, but they didn't have to worry about costs? If you want to talk about ways in which social mobility, economic mobility, greater political participation, and overall quality of life improves, it's when it comes to education opportunity and educational access. And I think there's no better place to start other than perhaps you can talk about economics, but I think there's a link between economics and education. But if you begin to talk about access to higher education, better quality K-12 schools, better early childhood education as a sort of part of a larger reparations framework, I think you can begin to make Mm. significant inroads in terms of opportunity for black folks. Given all the rights that we have in this country, i got 60 seconds, 90 seconds before uh, uh, news, uh, sports, and traffic. But in 90 seconds, we can continue. We come forward here. Um, but given all the rights that we have in this country, Dr. Hyde, what do you make of the fact that we do not have a right that guarantees us equal access to high-quality education? Yeah, that's the problem. Because we cannot, you know, James Baldwin always talked about this country having what he referred to as willful ignorance. This willful ignorance in that we say... We believe in equality, we believe in justice, we believe in freedom and opportunity. But yet when you sort of peel back the layers of the onion, you recognize that there are still millions of people in this country who do not have access to a basic right such as high-quality education. And I do think if we don't get this right, Tavis, I think you will very well see a deepening underclass. I think we see it already. I think mm-hmm. the notion of a middle class is really more of a, of a facade than it is a reality. I think mm-hmm. you've, got a, you've had a shrinking middle class for, for decades in this country. So I think that education in some ways is only perpetuating sort of this, this notion, like, like I mentioned earlier, between haves and have-nots. Uh, we've got to look ourselves in the mirror as a nation and say, how can we compete globally against right. the, the Chinas of the world, the Indians of the world, when we still see too many of our young people do not have access mm. to the high qualities of education that they deserve? i got a lot more questions. you got a lot more answers. We'll continue when we come forward. Dr. Tyrone Howard on KBLA Talk 1580. I'm Tavis Smiley. Our guest in this hour is Dr. Tyrone Howard, and we're glad to have you listening to KBLA Talk 1580. Our phone number, 1-800-920-1580, 1-800-920-1580. We are talking in this hour, in case you've just tuned in, 40 years later about this uh, historic and landmark uh, report called A Nation at Risk. It came out during the Reagan administration. Of course, as I said earlier, the Reagan administration had a clear agenda when they pushed this report out, uh, but uh, there's no denying the fact that it did. Uh, kick up a conversation uh, about the way we do education in this country. Of course, in their report, uh, they were adopting uh, and suggesting uh, uh, that we uh, consider new standards uh, to, uh, for, for students, uh, new standards to, to evaluate teachers, uh, teacher preparation, teacher pay. A lot was in this report 40 years ago called A Nation at Risk. And here we are 40 years later uh, discussing with Dr. Tyrone Howard of UCLA uh, what he makes of um, uh, this uh, report 40 years ago and what we have done or not done, as it were, in the four, K, in the four decades since. He, uh, by the way, is also president, Dr. Howard is, of the American Educational Research Association. I'm delighted to have him on 
in this hour. There's a quick recap again for those who may have just tuned in uh, what we are discussing in this hour. That said, let me keep moving forward here. Um, I am I'm wondering specifically, Dr. Howard, what it is that you think we ought to be. How might I put it? Rethinking about the way we do education 40 years after this report. Now, that's a broad question. What should we be rethinking? I'll let you take that anywhere you want to take it. But I hope that as a part of your answer, you will specifically hone in on what we ought to be rethinking about the notion of standardized testing, the notion of teaching to the test. I digress. I pass the microphone to you, sir. No, perfect segue. Thank you for that, Tevis. I, I do think that uh, we've got a, we had an opportunity post-pandemic to really radically reimagine what we think about schooling and public education. And I think we're, we're, we're dropping the ball on that because what we learned was that our young people need schools, our young people want to be in schools, and schools provide a very valuable sort of part of the academic, social, emotional, and cultural development of young people. Uh, I think what we have to recognize is that testing uh, in the traditional sense of how we've done it by way of standardized testing does not help us. There's all kind of data that shows us that we can assess what students learn in more summative fashions, informal assessments, formal assessments, but not high-stakes testing. Uh, part of what we know from everyday folks in classroom, the phenomenal teachers who do this work every single day, is that they can tell you where we can see growth in certain academic areas. They can tell you where we can see mastery of certain concepts. We can begin to put together portfolio assessments of how students have shown you know, growth and development from, say, where they are in September and October compared to where they are in April and May. But this idea of we're going to say these standards that are just kind of really, in my opinion, kind of arbitrary, uh, and we're going to make the entire academic year based off of this test we take in April, we're going to talk to the test, we're going to teach to the test, we're going to stress the test. Uh, that's not learning. And I think what we could be doing is imagining a different way of what schooling can look like meaning where it's more exploratory learning, there's more hands-on learning, there's more problem-based learning, there's more sort of engaging in complex issues around content connected to real-life issues. Uh, you look at other countries across the world, they're not sitting here doing, you know, rote sort of, you know, drilling, kill kinds of instruction. They're having students debate, engage in Socratic seminar, have students think about, you know, issues in their communities that they can apply, new information that they've learned. But it also has to be done in such a way that recognizes the holistic development of young people, right? Uh, meaning that now in this moment, we continue to hear about high levels of anxiety and depression that young people have. We need to make sure that we have supports in schools that help with young people's mental health. Uh, I'm also worried in this moment, Tavis, because with all this craziness going on in our country around banning books and uh, you know, eliminating AP African American studies. And there's an erasure that's happening in this country that does not want to lift up the experiences of black folks and other folks of color in this country in terms of their, their historical contributions. So what we should be doing is making sure that those contributions are just as much a part of the curriculum as the American Revolution or as, as, as the Civil War, because those aspects of the, the black sort of journey in this country, that is American history. So I get worried about sort of the content that we're putting in, I get worried about the holistic development, and I think we've got to understand that there are far more ways for us to assess student learning than what we've done with these high-stakes testing. No, I appreciate that response, and the response you just offered uh, leads me now to to ask the following. Um, uh, I was reading uh, and watching, frankly, last week uh, when Randy Weingarten, the president, uh, you know, National Teachers Union uh, president, um, when Randy was being grilled, and I do mean being grilled, I don't know if you saw any of this, Dr. Howard, but they 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 tore her a new one last week uh, in that in that committee hearing. 
Um, and they were ripping her. And Marjorie Taylor Greene is on the committee, and she made all kind of news. She got into a, a major tete-a-tete and called Randy Weingarten, kind of disrespected, frankly, not kind of, in fact, disrespected Randy Weingarten in her testimony. So, again, Marjorie Taylor Greene makes news once again for just being completely out of control in that, in that particular hearing. But they were grilling Randy uh, about her suggestion uh, during the pandemic that schools uh, remain closed, that kids not go back to schools right away. Randy had a list of things that she thought needed to be done before schools reopened. But the grilling had to do with the fact that there seems to be data now that is incontrovertible, unassailable, that kids lost ground, a lot of ground during the pandemic that they will never make up. Uh, And that, as I watched the hearings, was at the heart of why they were grilling her because she was the most vocal voice in this country, the loudest voice in the country as head of this major union, saying that uh, it was not yet time to reopen schools. Randy Weingarten is a friend of mine. She's been a guest on this program. I sent word to her over the weekend that I want to talk to her. I'm sure she'll be on the program uh, perhaps as early as this week, but you'll hear Randy in her own words on this program when I get a chance to ask her what she made of the grilling, the spanking she took last week. And on top of that, she is on the cover this week of the New York Times Magazine, and they're going in there as well. So everybody now calling Randy Weingarten as the head of this major teachers union to task about whether she and others were right to say that uh, kids should not have gone back to school earlier. Not sure how much of that you are aware of, but obviously it's a huge Mm -hmm. conversation. I don't want to color any question too much, but just to ask you your take on the pushback that Randy Weingarten and others are getting for suggesting that schools um, uh, stay out as long as they did. Yeah, so this is a this is a complicated one, and I did catch some of that. You're right. I think you're putting it mildly, Tavis. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, they, tore, they, they tore up, man. Yeah, they they did, and I thought some of it was 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 unfair. And and let me kind of sort of unpack it a little bit because number one, there it's easy now to look back and say you know we should have done A, B, C, and D. Right? I think you know hindsight is always twenty twenty. But I think the 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 real dilemma that that Randy Weingarten was in was that that many of her rank-and-file members felt like it was not safe to be in schools. Mm-hmm. They did not feel like they were uh, being given the, sort of the, the most sort of safe work environment. We were still all over the place in this country about, you know, vaccinations, about mandates, about masks. We couldn't agree. And so lots of teachers, and I spoke to lots of them, who like, I don't feel comfortable being back in, in school, though I realize there is a benefit for young people because I don't think it's safe for me individually. It's not safe for my family. It's not safe, it's not safe for young people. And it's not safe for, for the students and their families. So I think Randy was hearing that call loud and clear from her membership that we don't want to be back. Not all, but many, right? Mm-hmm. But I think Marjorie Taylor Greene now is, is, is of the opinion, like many folks were, like, look, kids need to be in school. And let's be clear, there is, there is, there is lots of, you know, uh, uh, clear-cut, credible, reliable evidence that says that our kids do best when they are in school, right? That is, that is, that is very, you know, evident. But I think, again, you've got to unpack that. Our kids do best when they're in school, when they feel like they are in school without all the concerns around their safety, around all the worry around a deadly virus being passed around. They're, they're good in school when they don't have to worry about their, their parents and caregivers being at, at risk or in harm's way. So we, we were in the midst of, a, a, of uncharted territory and I get the push that folks had to get young people back in schools, 
But but in many ways, states and districts and counties were not all on the same page about what was the safest environment for young people to come back to. And the adults did not feel safe. So, uh, yes, there has been learning, what they call learning loss. I don't like that term because it assumes that young people aren't learning when they were at home. Mm -hmm. But there has been sort of of an erosion, if you will, of academic progress across the board. And I find that a bit disingenuous because we raise that when we see that happen across the board. But you know me, Tavis. Look, mm-hmm. I'm concerned about the least amongst us. When black children have suffered academic erosion for years, where has the outcry been around yes, that? Yes. Where has been the where's the anger been around that? When black children are placed in schools with, with, with inexperienced teachers and overcrowded classrooms and lack of access to, to, to college preparatory classes, where's where are the Marjorie Taylor Greens then to say that we need to do something different? So I always ask who are we most concerned about when it comes to public education? Because when we see certain kids sort of not getting what they need, we're up in arms. When other kids, what I call the throwaway kids, uh, poor black and brown kids, when they don't get it, we seem to, we seem to turn a, a sort of a, a deaf ear and a blind eye to them. So we've got to be better in terms of making sure that when we make these calls, we're making sure that these calls are about making sure all students get access to, to better opportunity, not just some. Dr. Tyrone Howard with a drop the mic moment on KBLA Talk 1580. Dr. Tyrone Howard, um, let me ask you uh, specifically, and as I often say when I uh, pose certain questions, I am not naive about asking this question, but um, you referenced it earlier, and I want to come back to it uh, more directly uh, and get to give you a chance more expressly uh, to respond to this, uh, this, this notion, and that is the gap uh, that persists uh, specifically for African-American students. Forty years after this landmark report, A Nation at Risk, what would you say is the primary reason? I know there are many. What's the primary reason uh, that uh, this achievement gap still persists for black students in particular? Yeah, I think the the primary reason why this gap still persists is that this country has never been uh, willing to be unapologetically bold in placing a priority uh, by way of political will, uh, and 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 uh, fiscal resources around the education of black children. Mm. Plain and simple, mm-hmm. we have lots of other interventions for, let's say, our language learners. There is a bilingual uh, uh, act that that supports millions of young people across this children, many of whom are are, are Latino. That helps those children. Uh, the, the Indian Bureau of Affairs does a lot around supporting uh, Native American students. Uh, there are Title One funds that help lots of poor students. But there's never been anything that is specifically targeted to black students. And I think, for example, if I can for a second talk about what we did not do here in California, I felt like Governor Newsom had an opportunity with AB 2774 that would have specifically targeted uh, legislation around the lowest performing groups in our states, which, which are black students. I think he dropped the ball on that. I mm-hmm. think he's trying to do a redo with that with his equity multiplier. But that, but that is kind of nuanced. I think we just are not willing to say that if we can be intentional in our interventions around supporting, and we know it works. I mean, it's, it's having young people reading by grade three, having access to high, uh, high quality early child education, uh, having smaller class sizes, highly qualified trained teachers, having access to, to, you know, to after school and academics. We know what works, but we just don't want to make an agenda solely focused on the needs of black students and because of that, it gets watered down. It becomes sort of multicultural, multi-ethnic, kids who in poverty, all of which black students fall in those categories. But yet it's not specific to the needs, unique needs of black students. Mm-hmm. So that's one. Mm-hmm. I think I, there could be the, the others. 
Yeah, I, I heard you say earlier that you don't like the term learning loss. I won't use learning loss. I'll use your phrase, uh, <laughs> academic erosion. Uh, if there was, to your brilliant point of moments ago, if there was academic erosion for everybody, and as a result of that, now you got congressional hearings and people calling Randy Weingarten on the carpet and people, you know, uh, uh, just gnashing teeth and, and just uh, upset uh, about the, the ground that has been lost vis-a-vis uh, -vis our young people and their education. Um if there's academic if there's academic erosion for everybody across the board, then I have to believe that that was certainly much more acute for black students. Oh, most certainly, and there's data that bears this out, right? As yeah. we look at the uh, the academic erosion, uh, in some cases, it's two to three times worse for black students than it is for white students, mm -hmm. Asian students, and mm -hmm. so that's why, as we think about interventions, we have to be very customized in our approach because the one size fits all approach is not going to work. I think in this moment, we have to recognize that we are still a nation at risk. Uh, but when you do a deeper dive at who's at greater risk, as you yeah. know, Tab, the saying goes, when, when white folks catch a cold, black folks, we catch the flu or pneumonia, right? Mm -hmm. And I think this pandemic bore that out in terms of where we saw who had less access to online supports, technology supports, who had less access to teachers who created these learning pods and communities. Uh, who were more likely to have parents and caregivers who were essential workers who couldn't be at home with their children, uh, black folks did. And so yeah. I think when you look at the academic erosion, we have to be careful to not point the finger and blame black families, black children, black parents, and not look at structural factors that led us to being in this place in the, in, from yeah. the outset. Funny how we keep coming back to this notion of equality versus equity, right? <laughs> yes, if, 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 you're going, if you're going to address it, you got to deal with the equity part of it, uh, specifically where our babies are concerned. But I digress. Our remaining moments with Dr. Tyrone Howard when we come forward on KBLA Talk 1580. Watching my time here, Dr. Howard, uh, you've got a few minutes left between now and the top of the hour. Um, as we talk about, again, 40 years later, this landmark, uh, this historic report called A Nation at Risk which came out uh, courtesy of the Reagan administration and uh, put American education on a path in a particular direction. And we're just trying to interrogate uh, whether or not we went the wrong way uh, 40 years ago. Um, you mentioned earlier in this conversation the notion of literacy. Uh, and I, I, I wonder if you can speak to that and whether or not we have made any progress writ large. I'm not just talking now about the black thing, but writ large. Have we made progress in this country um, 40 years after this uh, report, uh, A Nation at Risk, on the issue of literacy specifically? Uh, again, it's, it's a complex and mixed picture. Yes, and when you look at literacy rates across the board, we have made progress. Jonathan Kozel wrote a powerful book in 1985, 1986, called Illiterate America. Mm -hmm. And at that time, he talked about the fact there were close to 25, 30 million, what he called functionally illiterate folks in this country, uh, folks who could not read beyond an eighth grade level, who could not read, you know, danger signs on their medication or could not navigate the world around them. That number is significantly lower now. It's down to about five to five to six million, we see by some estimates. Uh, so we have made tremendous progress in that regard. But again, Tavis, you know this, I always come back to the devil being in the details. And this is where we've got to do a deeper dive, because when you look at those millions who are still, quote unquote, functionally literate, uh, the disproportionate numbers of those folks happen to be poor, they happen to be black, they happen to be brown. Mm. Uh, and some of the data in schools suggest that we are going to see those numbers potentially rise, because at this point, we've only got about a third of kids in, in the country uh, who are reading at an at a, at a advanced reading level by third grade. Uh, we see for black and brown children, the numbers are close to like 65, 70 percent who are not reading that grade level by third grade. That is, to me, outright criminal. And I use that word criminal intentional because we know that this is uh, the through line between the school to prison pipeline. So 
So we've got to do a better job. And again, we know what works. Early intervention uh, in the in the primary grades, preschool to grade three, make a big difference in help, helping the kids become literate in ways that they can navigate the worlds around them. But I will also say this too: uh, I throw I throw numbers and data out all the time. But I also want to be careful because some of these metrics that measure literacy rates don't always measure them in the most adequate and accurate ways. Mm-hmm. So that's why I think folks sometimes kind of put a bit of a caution on some of those numbers. And I need to do the same thing here because there are other mechanisms we can use to measure literacy that would show that, you know, the numbers are higher than what they are. But the bottom line is we want to see all children, regardless of their racial or ethnic or socioeconomic background, be making sure that when they leave second, third grade, they're reading at grade level and are on the pathway for success. Got 60 seconds left in this conversation. Let me close where we began this conversation talking about uh, this report, uh, this landmark report, A Nation at Risk, that came out 40 years ago. Are we still uh, witnessing a rising tide of mediocrity in U.S. schools? I would say we are. Yes, we are. Because I think as we made progress, so much was undone in the last several years because of the pandemic. I do think that as I spend time in schools and classrooms, I am I am deeply concerned with not explicit in-your-face racism, but it comes back to what you mentioned earlier. I think it's the, the bigotry of low expectations that are far more common in schools than we would like to acknowledge. And that has to change. I think that the sort of the mediocrity, the low expectations, the failure to challenge students, the lack of rigor, some of the very things that were initially raised in a nation of, uh, at risk are still in place today. And we have to continue to keep our, our foot on the, on the gas to, to, to push and fight and challenge to ensure that that does not happen to any students. But again, when you look at rural and urban communities, it's far more prevalent. And I think we have to be and we need to be and we must be better. Dr. Tyrone Howard, Distinguished Professor of Education in the School of Education and Information Studies at UCLA uh, and the president of the American Educational Research Association. And he's uh, the author of a number of best-selling books, including Why Race and Culture Matters in Schools and All Students Must Thrive, to mention just a couple. Dr. Howard, always an honor to have you on this program. Thank you for your time. We'll do it again soon. Appreciate you, my brother. Likewise. Stay strong.